Iowa Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's energy-efficient windows keep the cold outside where it belongs, lowering energy bills. Get 0% interest up to the year 2029 if you book by January 31st. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Let's get right to it. Another day, another three Milwaukee police pursuits. Here's the story as reported on today's TMJ4. A Milwaukee police pursuit ended in an arrest near First and Concordia on Tuesday. Milwaukee police say the pursuit of a reckless driver began around 7.30 p.m. near 6th and Walnut. It ended near 1st and Concordia when the fleeing driver struck a parked, unoccupied car. 31-year-old man was arrested following a short foot chase. No injuries were reported. A firearm and suspected narcotics were recovered. All right, earlier in the evening, a separate police pursuit began shortly before 6 p.m. near 26th and Atkinson. Police were pursuing a car being driven by a 34-year-old Milwaukee man who was wanted for a violent crime. The pursuit ended near Cornell and Totonia when the suspect struck a median and experienced a mechanical failure. Yeah, hitting a median will do that. The 34-year-old man was arrested after a short uh, foot pursuit. So, again, two stories, people leading the cops on a high-speed chase, they smack into stuff, they get out, they run, they are caught. Around 10 p.m. Tuesday night, the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office said another MPD police pursuit ended in a crash closing the southbound I-43 Holt Avenue off-ramp to go west. So in the space of three, four hours, you have another three high-speed pursuits that are that the Milwaukee Police Department is required to engage in. Now, in all three of these situations, no, no, the good news is no police officers were injured, no innocent bystanders were injured, and to a lesser extent, the people running from the police weren't injured. So it's, it's good, but it's not a no-harm, no-foul situation. And if you're a regular listener to this program, you know we talk on a regular basis about how These three chases over the course of three hours or so, this is not a unique experience. This is is a typical Tuesday in the city of Milwaukee. One of the things that I think is, is so very, very frustrating, it's one of the reasons why people run, is because they know largely that there are no consequences for running. Sometimes... It's because, again, here it sounds like, you know, people are wanted for criminal activity or they've got guns or dope in the car and they don't want to get caught, so they end up taking off. Other times, people run just because it's fun. We've, we've got the stolen car. We're out joyriding. We don't want to get caught, so we take off. But the reality is, after these pursuits end, unless somebody has hit and killed somebody else, Unless there's something really egregious that happens, the consequences for running from the police are slim to none. For example, fleeing from the police in Wisconsin, it's what they call a class I felony. So the the maximum penalty is like three years in prison, might be three and a half years in prison. But but the limit is you can only go to jail, only go to prison for up to a year and a half. That that's it. Unless 
you go out and you, again, you, you hit somebody, you kill somebody, that, then it puts it in a different category. But just running for the police has very, very little consequence, and it has no mandatory prison time that attaches to it. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. I don't know about you, but I'm sick to death of these different stories. And the truth of the matter is, every time somebody runs from the cops, it could easily, but for the grace of God, end up in you if you're in the wrong place, you know, getting hit and killed, somebody close to you getting hit and killed. It puts the police officers at risk. And there's very little penalty. Here's what I think needs to happen in the state legislature. You need to take a hard look at the penalties for reckless driving. And here's where you start. Mandatory prison time for running from the police. There is no excuse to take off and flee from the police. And I think we need to take it seriously, whether it's kids on a joyride or people with, I I don't know, trying to elude the police for whatever reason. I think a good starting point is to say you flee from the police when you are caught. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. And when you are convicted, you go to prison for, I'd say, at least two and a half years. Mandatory minimum incarceration. Put the word out that if you run from the cops, there are going to be penalties. 855 616 1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I don't, I don't really know any other way to stop it because it's getting worse. It seems like every time a police officer goes to pull somebody over, and these are just the stories that we hear about, somebody takes off. This is the game that criminals are playing with police officers, and part of the reason they're playing this game is because they know there's very little consequences. Let's up the ante. Let's say you go to prison, no excuses, first time you run from cops. Would you ever think to run from a police officer? I mean, seriously, 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line, mandatory jail time, mandatory prison time for running from the police. I think it's an idea whose time has come. 855-616-1620. Let's talk about it. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Jeff, there was another high-speed chase early this morning between midnight and 3 o'clock. Speeds in excess of 125 miles an hour. Um... Uh, let's see, Jeff, odds are they've already got my plate on the dash cam. If, cam, if I run, they could pull up the footage and find me. Better just stop and try to talk my way out of the ticket. Well, of course, the people that are running from the cops understand that there's a reason why they're running. Um, it's a stolen car most of the time. It's kids out on a high-speed joyride. It's like the ones last night. You've got one guy who's believed to have been committed a, committed a violent crime. It's somebody else who's got guns and drugs in the car, and my guess is it's not his first time at the rodeo. Jeff, we need state lawmakers to step up and introduce legislation to resolve this problem. I'm getting tired of hearing about this crap on a daily basis. And, by the way, I'm getting tired of talking about this crap on a daily basis. But, but these... These are just the tip of the iceberg. You know, we, we hear the stories a couple times a week about the, the person fleeing from the cops who goes through the red light and hits and kills somebody else. Uh, that's, 
That's where this frustration is coming. Jeff, I agree 100%. Enough is enough. Lock them up. Jeff, who is against mandatory jail time? Who benefits from not having mandatory jail time? I, I guess only the you know idiots that are breaking the law. Who would vote against this? Well, there will be people who vote against it because they don't want the um, – they, they think, oh, this is too harsh, or they think if we do this, we're putting – too many people of this this type of person or that type of person in, in prison. Well, okay, if, if maybe the, that's the key thing is the message needs to get out to say that you can't have this happen. Jeff, police officers are in a position of authority. Police officers lose that position of authority now because of these ridiculous non-sentences that are set. No need for the criminal to stop. Jeff, I agree. Not only is the sentence a disincentive to would-be speeders, but it also takes the offenders off the streets. Yeah. I don't think there's any question about that. All right, let's start with Bernie in Wauwatosa. Bernie, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, and Jeff, I want to play a devil's advocate if I can. And by no means do I agree with this, but I hear this, that liberal mantra about defund the police. They're afraid of police brutality, and that's why they're running. Well, Bernie, th- thanks for the call. My answer would be... Um, that's a load of you know what. <laughs> I guess I, I I mean what why why are people running? Are people running because oh, we're afraid for police brutality? No, people are running because they're driving ninety five miles an hour, which is why the police try to put them over in the first place, and they decide to take off because they they don't want to get arrested. They think it's a game. They're running because they've committed a violent crime and they don't want to get arrested. They're running because they're a felon and they've got guns and drugs in the car. They're running because the car is stolen. I mean, that that's why people are, are running. It's not, oh, gee, I'm afraid I'm going to get beaten up by that one police officer. It's instead... I'm going to get away with this. I don't want to get stopped because if I get stopped, there's going to be some accountability. That's why people run. And keep in mind, the police catch most of these people. This is the story last night. The, the first two instances, people drive fleeing from the cops. They crack up the cars. They get out. They run. They're caught anyways. I mean, so the police are pretty good at, at doing this. I'm just arguing that there needs to be accountability. And by the way, I also... And this is where it gets really tricky. I impose that requirement. I think you you need juvenile justice reform as well. Now, the unusual thing about the stories that we we talked about uh, at the start of the show is these were adults. These were guys who were in their 30s who I believe were, again, committed underlying crimes who were fleeing because guy didn't want to get caught with guns and dope. The guy had committed a violent crime and he didn't want to get arrested for that, so they're taking off. But let's face it, a lot of the high-speed chases that go on are conducted by juveniles. It's kids who have stolen cars and it's kids who are taking off and running. You know what? I would apply the same sort of standard. In Milwaukee County, they will, as a general rule, not waive juveniles into adult court for car theft doesn't matter whether you've stolen five cars or 50 cars they, they just won't do it now if you steal a car and you lead the police on a high-speed chase and you hit and kill somebody it's going to be a different story I think you need to, to I think you need to change the attitude and to the extent that you need to change the law to make it easier to waive juveniles who commit this offense into adult court but my response would be anybody Anybody, certainly 16 and older, who runs from the cops, high-speed chase, boom, that is a ticket to adult court. Or 
Alternatively, if you think that's too harsh, I, I think that's a mandatory ticket to whatever sort of juvenile detention facility you're going to have, which doubles back to what we were talking about yesterday. I do not for the life of me understand why we're building a new juvenile correctional center in Milwaukee that only has space for 32 detainees it needs to be a lot bigger because we need to say clearly if you run from the police there's going to be consequences and we shouldn't at least in my opinion wait till the person running from the police hits and kills somebody hits and seriously injures somebody or causes a police officer to get hurt why do we wait for that to happen before we say you're going to be accountable. And if you run from the police once, you know sure as night follows day that you're going to be running from the police in the future. Mandatory minimum jail sentences. Let's start locking people up, and then maybe the word will get out. Maybe the word will get out. And if that means that there's some of the defund the police crowd that Bernie was talking about earlier who say, okay, well, we're locking up too many of this type of person or that type of person. Look, I don't care what community you live in. The reckless driving puts honest, law-abiding citizens at risk. And I don't care who it is and where it is that people are engaging in this. When you make that decision to run from the cops, you are putting other people's lives, you're putting police officers' lives in jeopardy. When you get caught, boom, you should be going to prison. Not this, well, we're going to give you a maximum sentence of a year and a half, but we're going to suspend that, we're going to put you on probation. Nuts to that. Let's start putting people behind bars, and maybe, just maybe, the message will get out. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Well, we certainly touched a nerve with this one. Jeff, we don't need the law to change. We need prosecutors and judges who will actually apply the, to apply the laws that already exist. Well, this might be one of those cases where I, I disagree with that because the maximum penalty for fleeing police if you if you do not hit somebody or you don't cause major property damage, the the, made, the the penalty it maxes out at right around three years. But the law says you can't get more than a year and a half in prison, even if the judge were to apply it. I'm saying mandatory minimum penalties and decide what the right term is. I, I, I said two and a half years in prison. You know, maybe you think that's a little bit light. Maybe you think it's a little bit too harsh. But you do need the law to change to have. Um, again, the mandatory minimum penalties that are out there. Jeff, you've always been consistent in your commentary on this subject. Um, I've listened to you for many years. I appreciate this nonpartisan consistency. You're spot on. Amen. Thanks. Um, yeah, well, that's the important thing here. Jeff, I agree 100% with you on this. It's time for consequences. It's worse than the wild, wild west out here. Jeff, there's no consequences for action. It's the same lawmakers who've been in power for the decline of Milwaukee and the same people who they keep voting for, who the population keeps voting for, you know, what what do you expect? Well, I, I expect us to start doing stuff which is going to stop that. Jeff, why not increase the punishment in juvenile court instead of wave into adult court? Well, I, again, that that's an that's an option. Although I, I think it's it's easier just to okay say we're going to make it easier to treat you know these sixteen year olds for example who decide that it's a game to run from the police at ninety five miles an hour it's easier to just say okay we're going to treat them as adults because candidly I believe that when you make that decision that shows all the requisite understanding if you're going to run from the police of wrongdoing but I, but I'm okay with I'm okay with a mandatory 
penalty that says, okay, you fled from the police, you're driving the stolen car, you fled from the police, you've run through the red lights, boom, you're, you're going to juvenile detention. Um, th- that's it. Jeff, a mandatory jail time for running from the cops will at least allow the police to investigate why someone is motivated to try and flee. Jeff, wouldn't Evers vote veto any harsher law? Well, that's a very, very interesting question. Now, Tony Evers comes from the liberal wing of the Democratic Party who, who doesn't like having people to be held accountable. It, it's no different than the district attorney in Milwaukee County, who John Chisholm, who, if he runs for re-election again, I, I think might face a tough challenge if there's somebody who wants that job and is a true law and order guy but you know chisholm's response has always been look i'm i, I want to let people out i and i recognize that those people that i let out are going to do you know bad things but i'm willing to live with that okay we'll tell that to the victims of daryl brooks for example so I, I don't know if the legislature came up with a revamp of the juvenile justice system that provided for more accountability, I don't know if Evers would sign or not. If the legislature came up with a revamp of the criminal justice laws, which required mandatory minimum penalty, I don't know if Evers would sign it, but it would be nice to put him on the spot and at least require him to say, okay, I am vetoing this. You run from the police. I am not going to go along with increased penalties. I'm not going to go along with mandatory penalties. Let's let's get him on record with, with doing that. And, again, I don't know what the politics of this are, but th- this whole idea is let's have some degrees of accountability because until we have accountability, this stuff is going to continue to go on. Jeff, uh, referring to one of our callers who's playing the devil ad- devil's advocate, saying, well, maybe people are running because they're afraid of police. And I reject that in its entirety. But Jeff, if the person stopped by the police didn't fight with or run from the police in the first place, there would be very few police physical interactions. Isn't that the truth? If you're... If you're talking about the situation where typically there's a question, okay, was there undue force used or something like that, it's normally in precisely the situations where you've got, all right, the person that's run from the cops, they've smashed up their car just like happened last night, they get out on foot, they're running on foot trying to flee from the police, the police are chasing them trying to apprehend them, yeah, that's... And then, you know, you're, you're tackling whatever. That's where you have, I think, the greatest likelihood of physical injury to somebody as a result of this. If you didn't run, you wouldn't have a problem. But, of course, there's not enough penalties for running. And we understand that the people who do run, well, in some cases, they've got good reasons for it. Let's hold them accountable. That's not too much to ask. So, very glad to have you with us. All right. Let us revisit something we discussed yesterday. It turns out that when Joe Biden was the vice president of the United States, after he left office, a relative handful of classified documents ended up getting placed in a private office that that Joe Biden had. It's something called the Penn-Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. And these, these classified documents... Apparently, like sat in a in a folder, and they were in a closet, and nobody nobody knew about their existence. And then, when Biden's people were moving out of this office last November, they they found these documents. They immediately notified the National Archives and made arrangements to turn them over. But the bottom line is, Biden was in possession of 
classified documents. Now, this this is different. I understand some people don't want to hear this, but it, it's it's different in, in in many ways from Trump and the classified documents. In in the case of of Donald Trump, what I think happened as to how he got all these different classified documents, I think that there were a lot of these classified documents that he had in in the the residence at the White House. And as he was ultimately being forced, kicking and screaming to leave the White House, they packed up a bunch of these boxes, including uh, a lot of the records, and they shipped them down to Mar-a-Lago where where they stood. So that's, I, I think, I'm, that's how I think that got here. And then what happened is when the National Archives folks realized that there were all these documents here, they started making demands of Trump and Trump's people to return them. And for reasons that continue to pass understanding, I, I don't think pre- former President Trump and I don't think his people took this seriously. They said, OK, well, here we're going to give you some of these. These are all of them. It turned out not to be all of them. And it end up, ended up in order to retrieve all the documents that were there, you had to do a, a search warrant on on the place and now there's apparently a justice department investigation as to whether criminal charges should be issued that's in fairness if you want to look at this fairly that's that's different than what happened with, with biden where it appears that this folder containing these classified documents that nobody still knows how how it got into the, this private office but as soon as they were discovered now, they discovered several years after the fact, but as soon as they were discovered, apparently Biden's lawyers contact the National Archives and they make immediate arrangements to return them. So you don't have this back and forth over a year period of time about, well, they possessed them and then, you know, they, they resisted giving them back, etc. So I think the, these cases are materially different. And as I've said repeatedly since this whole thing broke out, came out, I don't – I still – You want to talk about self-inflicted wounds. I do not understand why former President Trump just, when this stuff was first discovered, why he didn't just say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, you know, boom, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give everything back and, and just make this whole thing go away. But for whatever reason, he didn't do it. But now, if you are the Attorney General of the United States and you're investigating Donald Trump, and you're considering, gee, might there be technical, might there be some violations of the law? He took these documents that he didn't, wasn't entitled to have, and, you know, he didn't give them back, and we had to go all to these steps to, to get them back. All right, so, so that's it. You're thinking about bringing charges. Well, now you have the current president of the United States, who admittedly, a different set of factual circumstances with regard to turning him over, but he's been in possession of classified documents for the last, you know, several years. Now, they didn't make the Department of Justice and the National Archives jump through all these hoops. Apparently, they gave them back. Biden says he's surprised to learn that there were classified documents in his former office think tank in Washington, but they were there. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. I appreciate, as I said earlier, I think the facts are, are different. But the underlying thing is former presidents wrongfully in possession of classified documents. Now they've been returned to the National Archives. Current presidents wrongfully in possession of classified documents from his days as the vice president, and now they've been returned. 
I guess under these circumstances, as a practical matter, is there any way that the Department of Justice and the Attorney General can go ahead now and prosecute Donald Trump, given the fact that it appears, and again, I I acknowledge that I think it's different factual situations, but how do you go ahead and prosecute Trump when it appears that Biden did the same sort of thing, not as egregiously, but Biden ended up with these documents. Trump ended up with these documents. Can you prosecute Trump and not prosecute Biden? And if you don't prosecute Biden, they're not going to do that. If they don't prosecute Biden, you know, does it make it look like a witch hunt if you go ahead and prosecute Trump? I think one of the upshots from what happened with the discovery of these classified documents in the possession of President Biden, at least in his office, I think it's made it difficult, if not impossible, to prosecute Trump. And you can argue whether that's a good thing or not, but I think as a practical matter, this was the get-out-of-jail-free card that Donald Trump has been looking for, at least on the records issue. Our number, 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. What do you think? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. As a practical matter, the discovery of classified documents, while I agree, in the Biden case, they think there are about 10. In the Trump case, they think there was about 300 of them. While the, the facts and circumstances are different, as a practical matter, I think it makes it very, very difficult right now to prosecute Donald Trump If you don't, in turn, also prosecute Joe Biden. It also raises questions about, you know, how how do people get out of the White House with all these classified documents? But maybe that's a question for another day. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Ken in Kenosha. Ken, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How are you today? Good. What do you think? Well, here's here's one big difference that nobody has brought up and nobody's talking about. When Biden took those documents, if I'm not mistaken, he was a vice president at the time, yes. correct? He he was, absolutely. Yep. Okay, so so he 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 had he couldn't declassify any of that stuff. When Trump nope. took those documents that they're accusing him of, he was president. He could declassify all that stuff. And and if I'm not mistaken, they're, they're talking about um, documents that Biden had that had to do with Iran and what Ukraine, right? The same Ukraine that that Hunter Biden was kind of doing business with. I mean, boy, uh, that really that makes well, me I mean, a, a little well. Well, thanks for talking. Right? Well, well, thanks for talking. I don't want to get too far. I don't know what's in these documents. There's about 10 of the documents, and we don't know exactly what they are. Trump had about 300. Now, you know, I've heard this argument about the president can declassify documents. That, that's that's true, but he didn't. I mean, you, I don't think anybody, I think, seriously argues that, okay, he, he, after these documents were discovered, that he went ahead and he said, okay, well, here's the deal. I, I'm going to declassify them after I've the president. He Look, the, the fact is he had classified information that he shouldn't have had. I, I think I understand how all this happened. He didn't want to leave the White House. He was trying to find all these different ways to stay. They had all these boxes of, of documents that were in the residence, which he was entitled to have, and what they ended up doing is saying, 
saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to um, – they just packed them all up, and, and they took them down to Mar-a-Lago. That's what I think happened. I don't, I don't really believe that there was criminal intent in doing this. I, I just don't think that was the case. But where Trump really went wrong was once they found out they had these documents there, it was not making arrangements. He failed to make arrangements to originally return them. And, and that's where, where I think you get the Department of Justice investigation that comes in. Biden, in Biden's case, apparently once they found these documents, they immediately contacted the appropriate people and they made arrangements to turn them over. So it's different. But for exactly the reasons that you're talking about and others, as a practical matter, if you were to bring an indictment against Donald Trump, I, I guarantee you that one of the issues that would be presented is that everybody does it. And the current president has ended up doing this as well. Jeff, when government officials request top secret documents, isn't there a record when the document was securely transferred to the person with credentials to have them? Don't they have a return by date? Isn't there any follow through from the National Archives? Even the most basic libraries know when and who uh, when materials are, are due back. Why aren't these documents being tracked? I think that is an absolutely fascinating question. And maybe that's one of the things that, that comes out of this moving forward. I, it's, it seems to me it's, it's, of course, perfectly appropriate for the president of the United States or the vice president, depending on what he's working on. They have security clearances to have access to documents that they need to do their job. But you would think that just like just like you have a situation, let's talk about law enforcement, just like you have a situation where you have a police officer that logs all sorts of stuff into evidence in the evidence room, and then you need the evidence to go over the case with the prosecutor, or you need the physical evidence to mark it for trial or whatever. The police officer has to go down, they have to sign out the records, and you, you have a chain of custody. Hey, this is what, what happened to this. This was the this was the gun. This was the driver's license. This was the wallet that was seized. And somebody has to sign it out. It is amazing to me that you have classified documents which are apparently treated so cavalierly that they can be piled up in in boxes in an executive office and, and nobody knows at least for a long period of time where they are what's happened who has them and i think that's that's probably a a lesson um from that um jeff notice how the mainstream media is mum on this subject well, that's an that's an interesting again situation to me, and I, I think that's why. And I know I, I irritated some people yesterday because I was arguing because I continue to believe that this is a different situation. I mean, the Biden case, in my opinion, is nowhere near as egregious as the Trump case, and I, I just I firmly believe that. But at the same time, it's government officials in possession of documents that they should not be in possession of. And I think while it's true that each case has its whole, you know, each case has one is more extreme than the other, there are enough similarities that if I'm the prosecutor, I'm just going to tell you, if I'm sitting in the Department of Justice and I'm looking at this case and I'm saying, look, to, to prosecute a former president, you, it's, it was always, it's always going to be a difficult prosecution because there's going to be a huge chunk of people who believe that this is a political witch hunt. That, that, that's just the reality that you face because you're trying to figure out, can I prove this beyond a reasonable doubt? And so you're faced with that to begin with. Secondly, unlike, I don't know, some of the investigations with regard to January 6th and stuff where you had violence, th- this is a, 
This is a technical sort of prosecution, and I understand the law is the law. I'm not minimizing that, but this is a technical prosecution. This is a, you know, it's a records thing. Nobody alleges that the records were, that he took the record, that Trump took the records, for example, to sell them to North Korea or anything like that. It was just, they're piled up in boxes, and he was, for whatever reason, not as cooperative as I think he should have been in making sure that the records get returned. But it's not like you have this huge motive that's out there of, oh, he was trying to enrich himself or or something like that. So that is a practical matter, is a problem for a prosecution that they always had. Then you add into the fact that now it appears that the former president, the, the current president of the United States, when he was vice president, he took records that weren't properly returned. And you can argue, okay, this is different, this is different, but keep in mind, in a criminal prosecution, you're, 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 you know, you're trying to, again, prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt, and this is just another one of those bricks in the wall of reasonable doubt. Jeff, this is just to make Trump look bad now. Um, people won't mention that Biden did the same things. Jeff, I thought these documents were found in November, and we, Joe Public, are just learning about this. Who sat on these? Well, why wasn't a SWAT team sent to the location? Well, I, I think it's fair to say, if this happened in November, what, why, why was this kept from the American people who did it? Now, the reason a SWAT team wasn't sent to the location is there wasn't any evidence that there were more documents there. The reason Trump's place was searched is because... They said they had turned over everything, and there was probable cause to believe that they didn't, and in fact, they hadn't done it. So that's why this whole thing with former President Trump is just such a self-inflicted wound. I mean, it's kind of like the IRS sends you a letter, and the IRS says, hey, we found out that you didn't report certain income from a, a second job that you had, and you know you didn't report the income from a second job. All right. I think what most people would do is, oh, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to file an amended return, and I'm going to report the income I had from the second job. This is like, okay, I'm going to report that income, but I also had income from a third and fourth job that I'm not going to report, and I'm going to see if they catch me. That's that's kind of what I think you know Trump ended up doing. I'm not condoning it. I'm not endorsing it. And, I, I again, it's self-inflicted from the perspective of President Trump. My point is, though, if I was the prosecutor in this case, already recognizing that I think there would be a difficult case and a very, very politically tough case to make for indicting Trump on this records case, the fact that it's now turned out that other people, including the current president of the United States, have done the same thing, My point is it just makes it extremely difficult, keeping in mind, of course, that you have to go in and you have to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. Time will tell what they do, but while the cases are different, I think what you heard over the course of the last couple days is the prosecution of Donald Trump getting a lot more difficult or maybe the case crumbling entirely. All right, when we come back after the top of the hour news, a number of things I want to discuss with you, including... Uh, a book that I have no intention of purchasing, no intention of reading. How about you? Why do you need to have a drag show at a high school? And are you tired of shoplifting and all of us having to pay more because people are stealing more? We're going to talk about all that and a lot more coming up. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. 
Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. I am going to, in this segment of the program, break one of the rules that I've kind of developed over doing a radio talk show in this market for 25 years here at WTMJ and a couple years before that as well. Um, the I, I typically find that topics work best if it's something that I feel really strongly about, I have a real strong opinion on, like I, I think we need to start doing lots more to curb reckless driving. And occasionally there's these stories that are out there that I, I really – I don't necessarily personally care about, but I suspect that a lot of people do. And and I in some respects I, I don't understand why. And this is this is one of those stories. Yesterday a book which is already top bestseller on the Amazon list came out. This is the book called Spare by by Prince Harry. Now, I think for those of you who do not follow Royal Intrigue, you, you know the deal. You had Prince Charles, and he marries Princess Diana. Princess Di gives birth to two children, William and Harry. Now, the way it works, and this is kind of a a weird thing about the monarchy, they they call it the heir and the spare, because Prince William, the older brother, two years older than Harry, he is going to be the next king of England. You know, after after Dad abdicates or dies or whatever, Prince William, he becomes the king. Prince Harry, well, he's he's the spare. If something happened to Prince William, um, then he would move into that place. But otherwise, it's Prince William, and now then it's Prince William's kids. So Harry is kind of out in in left field. You know, he, he's a royal, but because of again the the birth situation, he, he he's out of the spotlight here. So he, that's why they call it like the heir and the spare. Well, so Prince. Harry, I think for people who have been following this, if you watch, you know, TMZ or Entertainment Tonight or whatever, everybody probably knows that Prince Harry marries an actress from the United States named Meghan Markle, and she's controversial in her own right. And the two of them, Meghan Markle and and Prince Harry, they have gone very, very public in interviews with Oprah and interviews all over talking about how they were collectively mistreated by the, the royal family over the years. And I'm, I'm just I, I'm looking at some of the, the, the the book really doesn't contain anything that they haven't said in the various interviews that they've done. But, you know, I mean, it's a tell all book where, you know, they talk he talks about how, you know, he they're digging the dirt. How, you know, he didn't want his dad to marry Camilla after, you know, Princess Di died. He talks about how, you know, he and his brother hadn't been getting along um, and really kind of led separate lives. Um, they talk about how they really weren't the best man at each other's wedding. It, it's just, it's one of these things where you're just digging all sorts of dirt that that's, out there he talks about how that um you know his his older brother who is going to be the king someday felt trapped by his father by you know by his father um it it, goes, it just goes on and on and on and he explains from his perspective how he thinks that he's a, a victim of this awful you know royal family and that he just wasn't treated with respect and he was badly treated and all these things so th- this is this is the new book that is out there and it follows again again a huge publicity toward designed to try to make efforts to sell the book there was an interesting piece in the new york times 2 days ago that 
kind of epitomizes what I feel about this. The, the headline is, has Prince Harry's confessional tour run its course? Even in the United States, which has a high tolerance for redemptive stories about overcoming trauma and family dysfunction, the tide seems to be turning. In their prolonged campaign to tell their story and to present themselves as victims of the British royal family, the tabloid press, and critics and haters everywhere, Prince Harry and his wife Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, have in the last two years revealed their secrets to Oprah Winfrey, revealed them again to various sympathetic television interviewers, produced and starred in a six-part Netflix series, and in the case of Harry, appeared on the actor Dax Shepard's podcast, armchair expert now comes the prince's multi-million dollar ghost-written memoir spare set for release what was released yesterday it has been leaking out all over the fa- of last few days one eye-popping detail after the next and then it goes on to say maybe just maybe they have completely and totally jumped the shark our number is 855-616-1620 which is the old national bank talk and text line i'm I'm always interested when when new books come out, and, and uh, a lot of times I, I'm a great customer of Amazon. It's like, okay, this looks sounds like it's an interesting book. I'm I'm going to buy it. I want it delivered as soon as it releases. When I heard about this book, I have I can tell you I have absolutely no interest in it. Just like I know maybe at the very beginning, maybe you know you were kind of interested in that celebrity. Let's watch the train wreck sort of thing. Again, it's the last two years. These people have been going out and they've been selling their story with one detail about another about how, oh, this was so terrible. It was so terrible to grow up as royalty. And they, they called me the spare. Can you imagine that? Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Do you have any interest in this book at all? Now, I understand there's enough people who are fascinated by royalty that they can't get enough of it, that this will be at the top of the New York Times bestseller list and the top of, like, Amazon's bestseller list. But I'm curious, do you have any interest, is there anything else that Prince Harry has to say that could be in this book that he hasn't said multiple times in all these other different venues? I mean, how many times can you tell the same story again and again? Oh, I was the second kid. They, they didn't treat me like they treated the oldest brother. We had this dysfunctional royal family, and um, they weren't nice to my wife. Okay, at some point in time, I don't know, are you going to spend twenty nine ninety five to buy a book to read that? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Now, I, I admit, I've always found the, the British monarchy to be a really, really odd thing. And I, and I don't mean to be harsh about this, but let's take the case of Prince Charles. You spend your entire life being trained for one thing, and that is to take over. You're going to be the king when your mother dies. You, you spend your entire life essentially waiting for your mother to die. How, how, how weird is that? And in the case of siblings, okay, so William, okay, is the firstborn son. The Harry, who's born two years later, William, he's going to be the king. He spends his entire life waiting for his father to die, but then he's going to be the king of England. Meanwhile, Harry, eh, I mean, Harry, it's like, okay, well, you know, have, have a good life. And, and yes, you're going to have a title, and yes, you're going to have money and things like that, but you're really, you're, you're completely out of the, the line of succession. You're just going to be kind of that extra piece that's there. And I guess, I mean, I just always thought all that is weird. But at the same time, I, I think at some point in time, 
this this family dirt. Oh, so and so was my my brother or my my mother or my grandmother wasn't nice to my wife or you know my brother and I we started dis- dis- disagreeing when we were you know teenagers and stuff. At some point in time, it's like hey. Pal, there's a lot of people that really struggled in life. Why don't you have a little bit of, of dignity? Do you need to completely and totally dish the dirt? Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. I would rather clean the nastiest, dirtiest oven in 90-degree weather than read this book for the following reasons. One is that I have no interest in the royal family. Um, I think that he's a little bit of a of a bum, and I don't like how he's turned turned his back on his family, and he's a crybaby. And then I also think this is really just tabloid stuff disguised as a biography. And fi- and finally, I'm pretty sure that if I read this book, that my BS meter would be in the red. <laughs> yeah, Jeff. No, thanks. Thanks for the call. I mean, I I think I think there's there there is an element to that. Plus, as I was saying earlier. There, you can only tell the same story so many times, and, and they have been telling their story for money for the last two years. And, and so you have to get either it, – it's not like I think they held anything back when they went on with Oprah or whatever. So now you're, you've got this ghost-written book, so you're, you're trying to say, okay, well, what other – what other things can I have? Oh, oh, you know, when when we went to uh, when we went off to boarding school, you know, my older brother was there two years before me, and and we started not getting along. <laughs> okay, all right, really, come on. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, Prince Harry and wife Meghan could perhaps be justified in their behavior if they were serious about reform or abolition of the British monarchy. However, I'm guessing that their comments are actually perceived as just a lot of complaining. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. Jeff, personally, I couldn't care less about the gossip and the drama, but if someone would offer me millions to write a book about my life, I would take it. Well, yeah, that's it, but that's the question that I'm fascinated with is, do you would you buy the book? I mean, yeah, if somebody's if somebody's going to give you this money and provide you with the ghostwriter, okay, I mean, yeah, but would would you buy it? Jeff, I have no interest whatsoever in this. I wish they'd just shut up. I'm sorry that growing up royal was so rough. I'm guessing there's one or two people who would gladly switch places with him. Jeff, I haven't cared about the Royals since July 4th, 1776. Jeff, I thought they came to America to get away from the publicity, and they've been seeking it ever since they got here two years ago. Megan and Harry, go home. Jeff, I have no interest in Harry's book. I watched his documentary, and that's enough. I'm very proud of the fact that I avoided that documentary on Netflix. Jeff, absolutely no interest in this. My comment to Harry would be stop whining. Um, Jeff, my take on the Royals is that it's only mildly interesting, specifically about Prince Harry. I do feel, though, that he's exploiting his family for financial gain. I don't doubt that he feels slighted. However, I do take offense to this extremism. I mean, how badly is your life when you're a royal? I deal with people who have very serious issues with trauma and and uh, issues. Jeff, I have zero interest in this book, and as a black sheep of my own family, the best revenge is moving on and having a happy life. That's the best revenge. Stephen Greenfield says, Jeff, I'm with you. I don't get it either. I have no interest in all this royal family drama. Seems like rich people's problem, Steve. Yeah, I think that there is an element of that. Jeff, I will not read this book. I think the book is just a moneymaker for Harry 
and Megan. Jeff, I've got no interest at all either. Harry and his wife can go away any time now. Welcome back. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Minor technical problem there. I I guess the the bottom line is this will be a very, very successful book. I I have no doubt about it because there's a lot of people that are going to be interested in it. I just, I admit, I I just don't, I don't get it. Um, But a lot of people, I guess, just can't get enough of it. I just don't happen to be one of them. And at least if our of the, I don't know, 50 to 100 texts that I've just gotten over the course of the last few minutes or any indication. I don't think a lot of, at least you, get it either. But needless to say, there will be people there who will, will certainly and definitely purchase this. Um, boy, it, it's just a tough time for the airline industry. They, they've apparently worked their way out of this, this problem. But uh, today... If you had, particularly if you were flying out of the East Coast and you had an early morning flight, and generally speaking, lots of people like to book the early morning flights, well, um, this, it, it just wasn't happening because um, the FAA ordered airlines to pause all domestic partners, uh, part departures until 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, which would have been 8 o'clock, you know, our time, to allow the agency to restore a critical system that alerts pilots and crews to safety advisories and other information for flights. Um, this is, they, they call it the Notice to Air Mission System, and apparently this is, this is the notification that tells, you know, pilots about what there are problems, you know, real-time flight hazards and risk restrictions, and it goes to all the commercial pilots that are, are out there, and apparently that, that system, you know, went down. And so as a result, the airlines made the decision that they were going to largely just um, decide that they were going to hold off on the flights until they could get this problem worked out. Now, my understanding is that they have... And they're, they're starting to catch up, although, again, this was another one of these situations that caused this huge problem with regard to, again, air travel. It, it is, it's indicative, though, and I think one of the real life learning lessons about this is it shows how vulnerable our air system really is because th- there wasn't a cyber attack or anything like this, but you have a system which ends up going down. That system goes down, and the effect of all this is, hey, all, all these flights can't fly. They, they can't be they, – they're, they're grounded. You know, as we saw a couple weeks ago when you saw all the, the bad weather and stuff like that, um, that ends up, you know, grounding planes, and in the case of Southwest, because of a variety of things, including the, the – their, their point-by-point flying system and software, which was probably antiquated 10 years ago. Now it's just flat out. You, you wonder if it's even functionable at all. But you saw all those flights get canceled. I, I bring this up because, again, it just points out how vulnerable air traffic is. And th- this thing that we take for granted saying, okay, you know, we're going to be able to get where we're going. We've got this nationwide system and we can go and we don't really have to worry about stuff other than perhaps bad weather. Well, this this is just a classic indicator of how vulnerable this really is. And I think, you know, maybe one of the lessons of what's going on over the course of the last month or so with regard to air travel is I think maybe you need to take a higher look and say, okay, let's take a, a picture from up above, no pun intended, and let's try to look at our, our air system and say, where are the vulnerabilities? 
And it, it is, I guess, sort of scary if you can have a situation where one outage ends up uh, essentially taking off all the, these flights, hundreds of flights, maybe more than that, get canceled or delayed because of the outage that this one system breaks down and there doesn't appear to be any sort of backup. There's no redundancy to replace it. You know, maybe that's something we should be looking at. Okay, coming up in the next segment of the program, I want to talk about drag shows and high school and get your reaction. Stick around. There we go. Welcome back. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, drag shows. Does everybody know what a, what a drag show is? Drag shows are where you have performers who dress up as members of the opposite sex and perform. Um, it's in, in, I, I have been to, yes, I have been to drag shows, some very entertaining ones. Key West, um, Las Vegas. And, you know, typically you'll have it, it's male performers who dress up as fe- in, uh, female singers. Uh, Barbara Streisand, you know, notably you'll have people who do Barbara Streisand. Liza Minnelli, um, Bette Midler, you know, the, the list goes on. But it's very, very interesting, and it's guys that are pretend, that are that are dressed up like the, these characters, and and I I will acknowledge um, there there's a, a high degree of entertainment with this. I mean, it's the ones that I have been to, and I am not a regular attendee at this, but like I say, I've been to one in Las Vegas, I've been to one in Key West, and it's 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 entertaining. Now, one of the things you see these aren't these aren't strip shows. That it's nothing like that. Um, they usually involve uh, either the people singing or lip syncing and dancing. The performers are, are dressed in drag, which is, you know, an exaggerated and highly stylized impersonation of, of the opposite sex. Okay, so that's that's what these typical shows are. And I think, I, I mean, I have no problem with people attending these, particularly adults. All right, here's where it gets interesting. Madison East High School was planning on staging a student-organized drag show. Um, It was originally scheduled for next week. It has now been canceled. Now, the school says it's been canceled because of safety concerns. In addition to an abundance of supportive messages regarding the event, the Madison School District says they've also received several messages that have raised a number of safety concerns for this student-led event, and the district spokesperson says, without question, the safety of all our students, staff, and families must be our top priority. Therefore, due to these recent safety concerns, we have decided to postpone this event to a later date. Now, I don't know what, what safety concerns that they're talking about. And if there were crazies out there that were making threats and things like that, well, that's that, there's no place for that. And if there were actual threats and things like that, you, you bring law enforcement in. But this that kind of misses what I think is the conversation that you need to have which is is this type of show and is this type of performance is it appropriate to be staged at a a high school now something that might be appropriate to go see in las vegas or go see in downtown milwaukee or go see in key west and things like that with professional performers that that that's that's one thing it's another thing to say, okay, is this appropriate for a high school? Just like when you're staging, I think, any sort of performance, whether it's a play or whatever, you're always going to be asking the question, okay, is this subject matter appropriate? And I guess the question becomes, is it appropriate to have high school students 
dressed in, in drag performing, I don't know, various skits and things like that? Or is that something that is better if it's going to be done, done outside the auspices of the high school or, you know, done, you know, later on when people become adults? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I guess my, my take on this, and again, I don't, I don't think the drag shows or the strip shows or, or anything like that. Nevertheless, I do find myself wondering whether this is subject matter, which is appropriate for a, a student show at, at a high school. Is it age-appropriate? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line we discuss in a moment. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. That, of course, is is Bette Midler, who is regularly um, imitated, typically, at drag shows. We're talking about Madison East High School that has postponed a student-led drag show because of backlash. They say it's safety concerns. They're they're not defining what that is. I I think the the more fundamental question is, is this type of, of show... Is it appropriate for a high school? And I will tell you, it's interesting because we're all over the map with the talk and text line. Jeff, it's arts and entertainment, no different than a musical. It lets those students express themselves in a safe environment. Well, okay, is it, I, I guess, but are, are there limits? And I, if, would, would you argue, for example, that a burlesque show or a strip show would be appropriate to high school? Now, I, I appreciate that the drag isn't it's not a strip show it's a different sort of thing but um there's lots of stuff that's arts and entertainment would we argue for a burlesque show jeff i think it's completely fine as long as the performance has been vetted for appropriate material dressing and drag is a form of acting and performance art you can have explicit drag shows or family friendly ones same as any performance people who are offended need to remember that in early theater like shakespeare men routinely dressed as women. Jeff, I think drag shows are fine. They're entertaining and enjoyable, and the content needs to be tailored to the group who is viewing the show. Jeff, I think it's um, not a good idea to have drag shows in high school. At the same time, though, I'm sure students have seen much worse on TV and can probably uh, opt out of attending or watching the show. But overall, I think I would say no to the idea. Um, let's see, Jeff, if it's extracurricular and not during class time, I say rock on school drag shows. They don't involve nudity or sex. I recommend someone does the song Cuban Pete with maracas and goes chick chicky boom. Um, 855-616-1620. For goodness sakes, why does a high school even consider having a drag show for their students? Is it educational, uh, to know that it may be entertained? It might be entertaining, but it is, I think it's inappropriate for high school, especially a public school that uses our um, our taxes to operate. Jeff, why are some school systems so obsessed with LBGTQ? Well, I think they want to create a welcoming environment. The question is, does that is that what this does? Um, let's talk to, let's see, um, let's start with Chris in Elm Grove. Chris, you're first. Good afternoon. My thing is, I, personally, I have no problem with drag shows. However, I think this is a prime example of the hypocrisy we deal with in our society today when the left, you know, says something's offensive. 
don't know if you remember, it's like a year or two ago. It's either Whitefish Bay or um, Sherwood. They wanted to put on a high school play of To Kill a Mockingbird, and there was right. all this drama because of the use of the N-word in that play. So I think they did not go through with it. Now, Correct. obviously, yeah. this is going to offend some people as well, having a drag show. So since there's a possibility of offending somebody like they used with that, I mean, it, I don't think it should happen. Yeah. No, it, Chris, thanks for that. You, you, interesting point. You're, you, you're, you are correct. And this is the, this sort of balancing that we have here. You're exactly right. I, and I believe it was Whitefish Bay. I'm willing to be corrected. Uh, no, I, or Shorewood. It was Shorewood. I'm sorry. I don't mean to pick on Whitefish Bay. It was Shorewood where they were going to perform to kill a mockingbird. And you, you had this, at least uh, certain groups that were outraged about this because of some of the language and the nature of uh, the, the nature of the mockingbird story. And so the, the public performances, I think, ended up getting canceled, and they, they had it on a very limited basis. But that's, that's what we wrestle with, which is what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. Jeff, my problem is deciding that this is called and dedicated only to drag. If a kid wants to dress in drag and perform in a musical or a talent show, I, I would support this. Jeff, newsflash, this stuff is going on in grade schools all the way down to first grade and kindergarten with the knowledge of school boards and led by class teachers. But we don't bear dare to bring up biblical passages against men dressing as women or vice versa. Let's talk to Bill. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Jeff, I have a question for you first. Is this the Madison University High School, the Madison High School on the northwest side of Milwaukee? No, uh, this is Madison East in Madison. Okay, well, I'm the former band director, music director, math teacher over at the other school okay. on the northwest side of Milwaukee, and uh, I heard all this stuff, and I'm going to, like, I will not- extricate myself from that and uh, let the Madison boys do what they want to do. Why do you, I mean, I, I, I take it from your, your tone that you think this is inappropriate for high school. Sir, I'm a music teacher. I am a retired U.S. Navy band music teacher. Mm-hmm. I never had any kind of confrontation or situation like this. It's kind of ridiculous, but hey, they're in Madison. Let them go to Madison. Let them do it in Madison. That's just fine. Leave me out of it. Okay, Bill. Thanks for the call. I I, I appreciate it. I guess I'm I'm <clears throat> I'm a little. I, I would have been curious to know again from the perspective of a music teacher and stuff. What 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 specifically is the? Do you find it to be inappropriate? Is it is it appropriate because of the content? Is it age inappropriate? Whatever. I mean, again, I. My take on this, and feel free to to disagree. This, and you know, I, I read some of the objections where people were saying, "Well, this is this is an effort by the, the school system to to groom kids and to, you know, teach kids that the cross dressing stuff is is norm quote unquote normal, whatever you want to define normal as being." I don't. I mean, I I don't think it's. I I don't see it as as that. I mean, for example, as I told you, I, I've been to. You know, I, I paid money, bought tickets to see some of these, you know, people perform at some of these high end drag shows. I, I don't I don't walk out of those drag shows thinking, okay, gee, what I want to do is I, I want to dress up like Barbara Streisand and strut around the stage. That that's that's 
and it's probably my wife is happy to hear about that. So th- that's I don't know about the grooming thing. I, I have trouble. I don't necessarily see that. I do think, though, it's always fair to have a comment about, um, again, the, the whole perspective of age appropriate. And that's that's where, where I look at it. Just like I, I wonder whether there's, I mean, clearly there would be some plays that I would argue are, are age appropriate to be staged in, in the high schools. I, I wonder whether there's a need to have the, the drag show that's there. Well, now, of course, if, if you've got parents who want to take their kids to see some entertainment like that and it's on their own time, okay, that's nobody's going to have any objection to that. I mean, I think that's a decision they make. The issue, though, becomes whether or not you need to give something like this the imprimatur of the school system. Now, backing up, if people were really making threats or there were security concerns, that, that's way beyond the pale. That That's not what it's deserved at. Nevertheless, you know, I just, when did we get to this stage where it comes to, especially when it comes to education, whether it's public school education or private school education, where do we get to the stage where we, we always figure we have to push the envelope with these different sort of school-sanctioned events? And, and maybe if we concentrated more on uh, teaching some of the basics like reading, writing, and math, maybe things would be better. And we left the drag shows to, I don't know, left them to the, the independent entertainment that's going on around the Madison area. In any event, they're staging the drag show. That is going to occur. We just don't know when the date of it is. Are drag shows grooming? No, I don't think it's that. Are drag shows strip shows? No, it's it's not that. Does drag shows, does it normalize um, this particular, I mean, aspect of the you know, LBGTQ community? I, I don't know that it normalizes that. I just question whether or not this entertainment, while clearly appropriate in some contexts, is appropriate for a high school. Welcome back. So very glad to have you with us. In the first hour of the program, we talked about you know my belief that if we're going to get serious about fleeing from police, what we need to do is we need to change the laws and we need to impose mandatory minimum prison sentences for people who, who do it. That's the only way you can get the message across to people to have consequences. There's another thing that has been plaguing area merchants, and it, it's not unique to southeastern Wisconsin or the state of Wisconsin. It's, it's across the country. One of the things that's been happening is stores have been getting ripped off constantly by shoplifters. Now, we all pay for shoplifting, first of all, because that, that's built into the cost of the goods. If you have a, um, I don't know, if you, if you have a store and they find that they lose 4% of their of their merchandise to shoplifting every year, that, that's built in into the cost. Then they have to increase the cost of everything to make up from that. One of the things we've been seeing, though, particularly since the pandemic, is more and more of the thieves have become more and more brazen about this. So one of the things that the new legislature is looking at this is changing the law to make it easier to charge thieves with a felony. Wisconsin and Texas have the highest felony thresholds in the country when it comes to shoplifting. You can steal in Wisconsin up to $2,500 and in shoplifting, shoplifted goods, and it's still a misdemeanor. 
You just think about that. You, you go in, you know, you, you steal you steal two thousand bucks worth of stuff, and, and all it is is a misdemeanor. Our neighboring states, like Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, Michigan, Missouri, they they have felony thresholds of between five hundred and a thousand dollars. Even in New York, for example, where they they just they don't want to put anybody in jail. One of the things they're looking at doing is they're looking at, at their, their limit is a thousand bucks, but they're looking at at aggregating things. So if you steal a hundred dollars from one place and get caught, and then three days later you steal two hundred fifty dollars another place, and then four hundred dollars somewhere else, they're they're looking at aggregating this. So once you get to a thousand, it, it ends up being a felony. But in Wisconsin. Again, you, you can steal up to $2,500 worth of stuff, and it's treated as a misdemeanor. So State Senator Andre Jock is part of, he and a couple other lawmakers are saying, look, we, we need to change the law here, and, and we need to lower it. Whether we lower it to $500 or 1000 I don't know. But you look at where these thefts are coming from, huge portion of thefts coming from stores like Kohl's and from uh, Dick's Sporting Goods and Home Depot. Um, it's the big box stores where there's a lot of problems that are out there, and you have these people that just think they can get away with it because you know what? They, they can because there's almost no sort of consequences, and the rest of us pay for this. Now, there is a problem because there are some stores that make the decision that they're, they're not going to report shoplifting. This was a huge problem a number of years ago at Bayshore Town Center because the store's didn't want the public to find out how much shoplifting was going on. And so if you called the cops and you filed a shoplifting complaint, that generated police reports and you had records and then people could look at it. So they just decided, well, we, we want we don't want people to feel unsafe going into our stores, so we're just we're just going to eat this. Well, in that respect, the, these stores, I think, were their own worst enemy because once the word got out that they weren't going to report shoplifters, well, okay, then they became a haven for shoplifters. So the stores need to cooperate. But I do understand this whole perspective that if if it's a misdemeanor, if it's only a misdemeanor and you can steal up to $2,500, it's almost like why report this because nothing's going to happen. This is a case where definitely they should lower the maximum penalty, make it a felony to steal $1,000 worth of stuff, and then let's prosecute the people who do it. It's not that hard. All right. When we come back, I've been promising this topic for two days. If you are a fan of the television show Yellowstone, there's aspects I want to discuss with you. And if you've never heard of the show, well, stick around because you're going to be, it will be an education. I guarantee it. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. I, I mentioned on Monday's program that I wanted to talk about this, and I, I kind of got distracted. And I, a number of people who heard that said, well, what, when are we going to talk about Yellowstone? Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Yellowstone, it's, it's about the biggest thing going on television today. Yellowstone uh, originally was going to be on HBO, and, and it HBO owned it for about a year and then just didn't do anything with it. And so what happened is Yellowstone, the the TV show, made its debut in 2018 on the Paramount Network cable channel. 
Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, 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 this is a drama. It stars Kevin Costner. He plays a rancher willing to do bad things to defend his land and the power that his family has amassed over generations in Montana. They're in the middle of the show's fifth season right now, um, and Yellowstone is averaging 13 million total viewers an episode, according to Nielsen data, including seven days of delayed viewing. It's a it's a big, big deal. But more than just Yellowstone, it's already spawned the, these various spinoffs. Uh, a Yellowstone prequel series about the family's arrival on the American frontier, it's called 1883, it launched in, in late 2021. Got huge ratings. There's a new prequel called 1923, which is the second chapter in the origin story. And the, the whole idea is to show how, okay, th- this, this family that we're watching in current days, how it got from, again, you know, 1883 to where it is in, in 2023. It's a, a show that since it has become so very, very popular, what's happened is they, they've just they've spent an enormous amount of money rushing these prequels out because people just can't get enough of of this. And you know this this show and the streaming rights for it is starting to generate you know huge amounts of of money in connection with this. And they're talking about you know this this show Yellowstone. Looks like it, it's it's one of the few things out there which is you know driving the success of people to go to some of these streaming networks, which is you know why they're doing it. They're, they argue that the show 1883, which was again one of the prequels, has led more people to sign up for Paramount Plus subscriptions than any other original series ever on the service. And this is at a time when they say a lot of times that, um, you know, uh, the streaming services get more and more divided. But this is this is driving people to sign up. So clearly they found something. Now, I have a confession to make. Um, I have I have watched some of the 1883 thing. I have watched um, the first, I think, two episodes of the 1923 show. I've never watched Yellowstone, and it's not because I have anything against it. It's just because there's just so much other stuff that's out there that that I haven't seen. But it's on my list, and and I certainly intend to sit there and and binge watch it at some point in time, you know, when I have the time. So I understand that this is really a hot show, but what I'm having trouble, I guess, figuring out is why it's as hot as it is. Our number 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, here's a comment from, from Pop Culture. What is it about this particular show that's generating all the watching, that's generating all these different prequels, that's generating people to, to sign up on a streaming network that I would argue that they, they perhaps probably wouldn't have signed up in the first place? What is the magic of Yellowstone? Is this... I mean, look, I can remember when, when I was younger, I can remember when there was a show Dallas on with like Larry Hagman and he played J.R. Ewing. And that was, that was a huge show in, in the 1980s. The, the, at the end of their, I think it was their second season, the big mystery about who shot J.R. was something that, that had the entire country that was speculating about. But Yellowstone, 
and its prequels and its spin-offs have clearly captured an audience in a way that I don't think most TV shows have. So, what is the appeal of Yellowstone? 855-616-1620. Jeff, I just started watching the second season of Yellowstone. I admit I am addicted. Jeff, I am a Yellowstone addict. I love it when I can channel my inner Beth, and I just finished the 1923 series. I think that's excellent. Jeff, I tried watching an episode, but I wasn't into it. All right, uh, Jeff, no season five. Spoiler alerts, please. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. Jeff, the language on Yellowstone is terrible, which speaks to the direction that our country is going morally. Um, Well, if you watch a lot of stuff on streaming services, really, really bad language. I'm working my way through um, The Godfather of Harlem, and that's that's uh there's some bad language on that jeff i'd got paramount plus just so i could watch the new season of yellowstone because i got rid of hulu live only to be disappointed that the new season isn't available without a cable subscription i kept it for tulsa king that's the one with sylvester stallone and they have movies that are in theaters now all right what is the appeal of yellowstone why has this captured the attention of the public and if you're a yellowstone addict i want to hear from you 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. A lot of Yellowstone fans out there. Jeff, I don't sit to watch TV very often, but with Yellowstone and its prequels, it gives my wife and I TV time together. I just can't put my finger on why it's so addictive, though. The characters really have their own personalities, which is easy to root for. Jeff, with everything so polarized, I find the show very refreshing. Cowboys, Native Americans, businessmen with opportunistic capitalism, all trying to find common ground. The scenery, the cinematography, and acting help make it my favorite show of all time. Thanks. The favorite show of all time. That's really saying something. And, of course, in in the, the... the, the prequel, the 1923 one, Harrison Ford. I mean, Kevin Costner is in the, the show Yellowstone. Harrison Ford, Helen Mirren, they're in 1923. 855-616-1620. Pete in Brookfield. Pete, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Hi, Pete. Yeah, the reason we, um, me and my wife got hooked on this show probably a year ago. We didn't start watching it when it first came out, and it it'll take you in hook line and sinker uh the the sheer beauty of the scenery alone is enough to make you keep watching but um but mm-hmm. you know besides the dramatic aspect of it what um what's really intriguing is um the it, it almost makes you like you want to live the cowboy life how these guys oh, okay. live live a rancher's life and what they go through on a daily basis it seems like it's pretty accurate how they how they actually live and this year especially this new current season really gets into a little more of the rancher's life of it you know as okay. far as cattle raising and branding cattle and yeah. living on the let, land and it's it's hey, let me ask, it's as good let me as ask the you Sopranos, this is as good as Ozark yeah. let me ask you this you did you or do you remember when Dallas was on is or are you too young yes. for that sure. Dallas, no, okay were you were, were you into Dallas were you were you addicted to that too it was good, but not on not on the same level. It's it's a it's almost okay. that was more of a um, yeah different type of show. But as right. good as Dallas was, this is a this is a different um, way of viewing the Western life. I guess would be the best way of describing it. It's outstanding. It's, as, it's every bit as good as every great series I've ever seen. 
Pete, thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. And that's 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 a lot. Uh, that that is saying a lot. And by the way, you're not you're not alone. Um, uh, I, Jeff, get John McCure to sub for you so you can binge watch Yellowstone. Well, I, I don't. I, hey, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that my managers would accept that as an excuse not to be on there. I want to watch this, Jeff. I'm an addict. My husband also. We binged watch way back when the first two seasons in a weekend and went from there. We are now watching 1923 and 1883. Just a little bit of excitement. The Beth character is awesome. Um, I think that uh, many wish they could be her, and but plus Kevin Costner uh, doesn't doesn't hurt. Jeff, it's a dysfunctional family with all sorts of secrets. It's just like Dallas. Jeff, I think it's a numbers game. You put on a ton of shows out there, and someone will find something to get hooked on. Yeah, except everybody gets hooked on some like obscure shows and stuff like that. But this this is a collective thing. This is this is the show that you can argue is attracting all sorts of people to this network. And 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 in a in an era where everybody watches everything, I mean these numbers that this show is doing is just just incredible. What was the number I was throwing about seven averaging, you know, 13 million total viewers an episode on a streaming service? That that's that's incredible. Jeff Tim McGraw, Faith Hill and Sam Elliott, um yeah, they they were tremendous. They were on the 1883 show. Jeff, I have watched all episodes of Yellowstone and the prequels. I love cowboy movies, people fighting to keep their land, and the beautiful Montana landscapes. Great characters and a lot of tension and drama. That's from Brad. Yeah, a number of people are texting and saying that the show, the cinematography is, is beautiful and the vistas are beautiful. Cynthia in Menominee Falls. Cynthia, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi there. Hi, so Cynthia. my husband and I are completely addicted <laughs> to Yellowstone. <laughs> um, we absolutely enjoy the earlier versions as well. I think it really gives you some history um, as to how hard it was in the country to get where you were going and what you were going with. So um, the main characters are fabulous. Who they have playing these people? Yeah, you could not have picked better people. For that, and I myself had a farm, had horses. I know what it's like to live that life, and it's very hard. Um, right. You have to really be willing to give it your all. So I, I just really enjoy it for that reason. So outstanding. Thanks for calling, Cynthia. You are not alone. And it just people are all over the map on why they love it, Jeff. I'm a Yellowstone addict. This is from Leanne. What's the attraction? Well, they're cowboys, manly men, wild women, Native Americans, Western culture. Gorgeous scenery, horses, and very little political correctness. There is absolutely nothing to dislike. Um, Jeff, Native Americans versus ranchers versus capitalism versus politics. Jeff, Yellowstone is like The Sopranos. It's basically a mob show, but it's set in the West. It's about family and what you would do to protect yours. Another texter. Jeff, it's about family, hard work, and love. It's old-fashioned family values. Huh. Um, Jeff. It's a show where every week you get to see Kevin Costner. Why wouldn't you watch? Uh, there you go. Jeff, I don't get it. It's just like a soap opera that becomes the same old, same old after a season or two. I really, I, I've, got to, I've got to check this out. Jeff, I think I'm one of the few that did not like Yellowstone at all. My husband and I did not like the first episode and have not watched it since. It seemed more like a soap opera uh, than, than anything else. I thought it was kind of confusing as well. Jeff, some of the actors and cowboys in the shows are real cowboys in life. It makes it 
very realistic. For me, Jeff, I love Yellowstone and the scenery. It's awesome. The storyline is awesome as well. Robert in Milwaukee. Robert, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. I'm watching all the Western shows, too. Mm -hmm. Hi. Yeah, hello. Yeah. Okay, that's all right. Anyway, any of this can you you want me to talk to Jeff about, or what would you like me to do? Okay, Robert, we're going to get... Robert, you were talking to Jeff. You were on the air, but uh, thanks for the call, Charlie. We can drop Robert there. Um, yeah, that's. Uh, it's just one of these. I I I am now making this commitment, and and there's almost, you know, so much. You you can tell that what Paramount is doing is because this has become so incredibly popular. They're they're rushing to get all the material out there, so that's why we're, we're rushing to have these prequels and things like that. But they're bringing in these incredibly big stars, and that because there's this incredible appetite for this. So, the Yellowstone universe—it's just—it's kind of like with movies, you know. You've got the Marvel universe that's out there with all the superheroes and stuff. Well, okay, this—it's not superheroes, but Yellowstone is building its own franchise. So, I guess for me and a lot of the rest of us out there, it's time to get on the train because that train is leaving the station. I am so very glad to have you with us. We're continuing to get swamped with texts from people who just absolutely love the show Yellowstone. And it, it's something that's, I think, captured uh, uh, captured national attention in a way. 13 million people. That, that's, that is a ton for a show that, that's, you know, that you can watch on. You have to watch on, on streaming networks and things like that. So you have to you know, pay the money to have it. It's, just, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And they've clearly hit on a formula. And I, I just, I don't want to, I, I haven't, like I said, I haven't seen that show itself. I, I will end up binge watching it, I'm sure, just to catch up with the thing. But I think it's, it's I, I respect the fact that it sounds like it's more than just kind of the soap opera. Because, I mean, I remember, like I was saying, back in the day, you had Dallas, you had Dynasty, you had things like that. But these were, those were sort of primetime soap operas. This sounds like it might be a little bit more than that. All right, want to talk about dysfunctional. Story came out, remember a few years ago, the, the Milwaukee Health Department, um, for, the, for the longest time, the health commissioner was a guy named Bevan Baker, and he was forced out of the gig in January of 2018, so effectively five years ago, after a series of, of problems related to treating and notifying lead poison children and problems in the department's cancer screening and family planning program. So the, the, the department was, was a mess, and so they forced the, this guy out. Well, they've, they replaced him, and they replaced him, and they replaced him, and they replaced him. Um, they've been through four, since he left, they've been through four health commissioners. The most recent health commissioner is a woman named Kirsten Johnson, who was the former director for the Washington Ozaki Public Health Department, um, who uh, she left because there were a lot of people that didn't like the way that she was handling the pandemic in Washington and Ozaki County. So she left and she went to to Milwaukee, where I think she she felt that she would be uh, treated better or whatever. Um, she's just announced that she's going to resign in early March. So this will now be, when they find a replacement for her, it'll be the fifth, the fifth health commissioner since 2018. 
Now, um, you know, she said, look, we've done a great job. We've really kind of turned this around. Didn't say why she was leaving or what job she was going to take. And that, that, that's all fine. You know, nobody suggests that, that she has to stay. But it is interesting to me that they can't find somebody who will stay at this job for any period of time. Continuity is important, and it's particularly important when you're dealing with something like public health. And the fact that they haven't been able to keep anybody in this job, I think, should be raising all sorts of red flags. And one of the questions they need to ask when they hire Ms. Johnson's replacement, one of the questions that I think that they need to ask is, okay, you know, what are your long-term plans? Is this a job that you're planning to just have a cup of coffee at, or is this a plan that you intend to make a career, or at the very least that you expect to maybe stay here for, I don't know, two years before you bail? Just saying. Welcome back. So very glad to have you with us. There's something about being a landlord that I think some people don't understand. If you decide that you're going to be a landlord, you are making a decision that you're going to do, you're going to invest your money in real estate in in that fashion. I mean, people invest their money in all sorts of things. Some people take their money and they put them into stock or they put them into bonds or they buy gold or, or whatever. For people who are deciding that they are going to make investments in real estate and they're going to rent it out, they expect a, a certain return. That's it. And if they don't get that return, well, then they're, they're not going to buy places. They're not going to rent places. So from the perspective of the landlords, landlords have to make money. They have to make money through the rent that they get from the tenants. And they also have to make money through the appreciation of the, the value. Hey, you, you buy you buy a duplex, you buy a four-family, you buy an apartment building, and the idea is that, okay, at some point in time, maybe you're going to sell that apartment building and you're going to make money because it's going to appreciate in value, and maybe there's some tax breaks that you can get. But the bottom line is, when, when you're a landlord, it's a business decision that is made. One of the problems, and if you talk to any landlord, they will tell you this, you know, one of the problems you, you have is with tenants when tenants refuse to pay. And that was a huge problem during the pandemic because there was a moratorium on on evictions. And so you had these landlords, their property taxes were still due, their mortgage payments were still due, but when you had renters who were refusing to pay, they could not be evicted. So you know th- this became a, a huge problem for that. Having said that, there's also landlords who are more aggressive with regard to evictions. Now, the Journal Sentinel is running this big, I don't know if it's fair to say it's an expose, but they're, they're looking at some of the biggest landlords in the city of Milwaukee, and they're pointing to the eviction rates. There's And they're, they're looking at the estimated eviction rate um, for 2016 to 2020. So it's really, I think it might overlap a little bit of the pandemic, but but not all. And there's there's one landlord group, Anchor Properties Group, and, and they estimate the annual eviction filing rate is about 94%, which means they end up having to evict nine out of every 10 of the tenants they have. Second is um, Barada Group, and we've talked to Joe Barada, who's the owner of that. They've got about 5,200 units, and their annual eviction filing rate is about 38%. So roughly four out of every 10 people end up having to get evicted. Um, Then 
the, the numbers you know go down. TE Group thirty seven point four percent. DAC Properties Group nineteen percent. So the, the, some of these large uh, large renters that they have a large eviction rate. There, there's no problem with that. Now you read the you read the piece. And there's people talking, oh, this is, this is awful that they're evicting folks. And, you know, maybe what we need to do is make it more difficult for these landlords to have their evictions. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I think that there's somewhat of a, of a disconnect here. And if you are somebody who's a landlord, I'd be particularly interested, interested to either hear from you or talk to you, you know, during th- this segment. I... Look, I appreciate that there are bad landlords that are out there, and I appreciate that there are slum landlords who don't take care of their properties, et cetera, et cetera. The flip side of this is I think that there's a lot of bad tenants out there, and especially if you own property in what I will describe as some of the more crime-plagued, um, low-income areas where whether it's you know people – just don't have the money to pay the rent or whether it's people just decide that their their lifestyle is such that they're not going to pay the rent that you'll rent a place and then you know you'll fall into arrears and then what's going to happen is you'll get evicted and then you'll find another place and the cycle ends up continuing i guess i look at an eviction rate and whether it's you know 25% or 30% or whatever to me that doesn't suggest that the landlord is automatically a bad landlord it suggests rather that the landlord is probably taking some risks on tenants. It's probably reflective of the area where the places are being rented. And it's not necessarily reflective on the landlord. It's more reflective on the fact that, again, if you're going to, if you're going to rent properties in, in River Hills, right, chances are you're going to have, I would guess, a lower eviction rate than if you're going to rent you know, properties in some other areas of the city. But when you see that a landlord is evicting lots of people, all right, does that tell you that it's a bad landlord? Or do you think there might be something else going on? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Journal Sentinel is doing a huge number of stories and a number of the large the, the large rental operations in, in Milwaukee, and they're pointing to what, what at first blush sounds like like really high um, eviction rates of thirty eight percent, thirty seven percent, meaning you know three or four out of every ten applicants end up getting e- evicted. And I guess I, I look at that and say that doesn't to me necessarily mean that the landlord is is in is in the wrong. It means that, first of all, it's probably a function of, of where the properties are. If you're, if you're renting to college students around UWM, my guess is the, um, the eviction rate's going to be a lot lower than if you're renting to low-income households in, say, a higher crime, uh, a more crime-plagued area of the city. But I guess the, the bottom line to me is, for, for everybody that wants to view landlords, and I'm sure there are bad landlords, I, I don't argue that, but for everybody who wants to view landlords as the, these evil spawns of Satan, the, the problem is they are making investments. And if they cannot get a return on their investment, well, they're simply 
they're, they're going to not be in the business and they're going to take the money from that property and they're going to put it in stocks or, or whatever. I've never wanted to be a landlord. I don't want to get that call at three o'clock in the morning from the property manager saying, okay, well, the, the toilets are stopped up or, or whatever. I've always chosen to invest my money in, in other sort of ways, but I certainly respect the people who choose to put it in real estate. Also, though, understanding that there's, there's going to be constant, uh, that, that, um, that there's a situation where they're taking those risks. All right, let's start with Tim. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, I I was a landlord. I just sold my house about nine months ago. Um, and I was telling your screener that, you know, all you hear about on the news are the mega landlords that... I think are in the minority. They probably have the majority of tenants, but they're the minority of landlords. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet you anything that most landlords own two, three, maybe four properties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like that, you mentioned the one guy that had a 90% eviction rate. Right. Well, I'm guessing that's, that's due to a very poor screening process when you're looking for for tenants. Yeah. Yep. No, hey, 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 Tim, thanks for the call. I, I, I'm sure, and I, I guess to me, that would be one of the first things. But, of course, you, you walk a fine line. If you want to be aggressive in screening because you don't want to have to go. Now, I don't get 94%. I, I admit that sounds to me like it's this way, 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 way out of whack. Um, but, but 30%? You know, if you're, I, I could see 30%. I could see 35%. Um, let's talk to, let's see, let's talk to um, Robert. Robert, you're on WTMJ. Thanks. Hi, Robert. Go ahead. Oh, is this, is this uh, okay. Uh, like Robert, I was you're saying on the air. there, I would say, okay, I'm, this is Robert. Am I speaking to somebody here? You are on the air. You are speaking to a whole bunch of people. No. <laughs> okay, I was an ex landlord. I was. I've been a resident of Milwaukee for uh, forty years, and I like I was saying, something has to be done. Not only that, but the Milwaukee public school system um, has to be changed also, so that we actually graduate people from high school that have a high school education, not the way it's going and it has been. Okay, but anyway, the landlord problem. Um, it, it, it's if the city feels that it's a landlord problem, the city. And there, and uh, the people involved with with the council and everything else for the city should take over certain zones of the area, fix it all up, tell them people can go in there and um, and uh, live for free, um, and and then in the meantime also make sure that they're um, having access to education, so eventually they can get out of wherever they're in, uh, getting uh, free government aid and and uh, actually getting a job. Now, what happened to that? That's a, it brings up a point. I'm just thinking about what happened to all these people that um, could possibly work at, at fast food restaurants. 
Okay, well, Robert, I want to stop you there because I don't, Robert, thanks to Robert, thanks to Clyde. I don't want to get too far afield here because I want to talk about the whole property issue here. Jeff, we sold our property a couple of years ago to one of the big landlords. The screening process is, in my opinion, completely lax to how we screen. And some of these large landlords only do month-to-month leases, which makes it a little bit easier for them to evict. It's an entirely different process on month-to-month tenant than the year lease which is what our company um, does. Uh, Jeff, I think people need to pay their bills. There's plenty of jobs available. If tenants can't afford to move to where they can, I used to be a landlord. Jeff, I think the high eviction rates indicate that landlords aren't doing due diligence in screening applicants, credit reports, income verification, etc. Jeff, here, um, as a landlord of a couple hundred properties, most of which I are in Milwaukee County. I can tell you the court system here is heavily stacked in the favor of the tenants. It takes months for there to be any consequences for them, even if you file immediately. Tenant damages to property can also easily be, be between five and ten thousand dollars. Yeah, I think you know that that's that's one of the factors that's out there too. When you look, and I understand that there is going to be certain properties that aren't maintained appropriately. And I think it's perfectly fair to say to the city, look, if you've got complaints about code violations and things like that, you know, you have every right to be aggressive with the landlord to make sure that the stuff is is up to the code. But at the same time, well, here's one of our texters that say this, Jeff, there are a lot of bad tenants that know how to play the system. I'm not a landlord, but I deal with them and I hear the stories. I've gone out with the sheriffs on evictions. So I, I see this firsthand. Jeff, landlords have an investment. They should not be expected to be social workers. Jeff, I'm a landlord. I own property. I take care of it well. I give my tenants an extra two weeks to pay me. And again, I think a lot of this probably comes down to probably comes down to the whole situation of, you know, where are the properties? Uh, how how aggressive are you in doing the credit checks, making sure that you know that that people pay and stuff like that? Jeff, I work for public housing, and I have to tell you the entire system is broke. There is a lack of qualified employees, and there is a lack of management oversight. You know that's that's a real interesting point, and it's uh, one of the things that the local newspaper they, they point out that the. Like the, the departments in the city that are supposed to regulate this stuff, I'm trying to find it here, are, are way understaffed. They're like down, they're, they're like down 30%, 35% of the, the people that they're supposed to have, and they can't find people to fill the job. Okay, now I want to overstate it. City's Department of Neighborhood Services, vac- beset by vacancies and delays. As of January, 13% of its residential inspection positions and one-third of its special enforcement positions so that is 33%, um, were vacant. The department receives more than uh, 70 residential complaints a day. So I I think this all kind of comes together, and I don't want the point of this conversation to be that, you know, we're excusing slum landlords. I'm just saying that when you see a high eviction rate, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad landlord. It means that you've got a landlord who's not getting paid and is trying to get a return on his investment, and I don't think that you can fault 
that. Um, and I don't exactly know what the answer is, but I do know that cracking down on the landlords and making it more difficult for them to make money from their property, well, I guarantee you that's a recipe for encouraging landlords to get out of the business entirely. And then where are people going to rent properties? Just saying.